Gracious God, thank you for bringing us here together tonight. Thank you for the time that you've given us to pause our work and intentionally notice and celebrate the good things you are always doing around us. Thank you for inviting us to participate with you. We look back over the past week and think of all the ways that you have been working with and for us, providing new mercies every morning, and we are reminded how extravagant and undeserved your love is. We pray that you would open our eyes to see it more and more. And even as we contemplate and celebrate your great love for us, many of us are still carrying heavy burdens tonight. Lord, we think about those in California who are in the midst of overwhelming wildfires. We ask that you would give the first responders strength and courage as they work tirelessly to contain the fires. We ask that you would keep them safe from the flames. We think about those who have been displaced by the fires. God, be with them as they are living in the midst of uncertainty. While they wait to hear news about their homes, their pets, their families, God, be their peace. Be present with them. We ask that you would send people who could minister your hope and grace in such a time as this. And Lord, we ask that you would send your rain to put out these fires. We ask that the flames would be quenched and the earth would be renewed. We also, God, think about those who are even closer to us in this congregation and in our own lives, who have really heavy burdens too. Some of us here are caring for loved ones who are sick, not knowing what is coming next. Some are waiting and waiting and waiting for our heart's desires, be that a baby, a marriage, a job. Others are struggling under the weight of depression and anxiety and addiction. And God, some of us are just tired from work, from kids, from strained marriages, from living in a world where so many things seem to be broken. Gracious God, we ask that you would be present in each of our individual situations. We ask that you would provide us wisdom and rest and peace in the places that we so desperately need you. We ask you would give us the courage to ask for help when we need it and to be the hands and feet of help when opportunity arises. God, there are so many lifeless places within our own lives and within our world, and we ask for resurrection. We ask that you would give us the eyes to see the places that you are already at work. We pray for Pastor Chris as he comes and preaches. We ask that you would give him peace as he proclaims what you have given him to say. Help us to hear and respond to the good news we find here in David's story that is really a story about each of us. We ask all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen really good prayer. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you would. Uh, Over the summer, we have been going through the Revised Common Lectionary and looking at the Old Testament passages that come out of 1 and 2 Samuel. And it is the story of uh, three characters. Uh, It is Samuel, Saul, and then uh, the person that we are most familiar with, David. I have some friends who have Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible. You can have this. Uh, If you don't have one, it is our gift to you, and if you just need it for the evening, you can just leave it on your seat at the end and conclusion of our service. But I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting with verse 26. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is this story by which David, who was the shepherd boy, 
turned a giant killer, turned refugee, turned king of Israel, uh, decides that he is going to have for himself another man's wife, and then, in a big scandal, he decides to kill that man so that uh, his sins would be hidden. We continue in that story, so I would like to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. So hear the word of the Lord from Second Samuel chapter 11. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and his kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it, you did it secretly, but I will make this happen, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you will not die for this sin. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. David's story is the American dream. It's a rags-to-riches story, but this story takes a crazy turn. David's gone from the underdog to the overlord. Slowly but surely, each move David makes removes God from the action and places David in the center of it. And when David removes God from the center and steps up into it himself, something transcendent happens. Something theological takes place. David becomes God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's even all-present. It's the most sinister of temptations. Take a bite is what the serpent said to Eve, and then you'll know the difference between good and evil. There's another way to say that. You'll be able to make all your decisions, have you, all your own decisions. Have you ever heard that temptation before? You and you only know what's right for you. You can do it on your own. All of these phrases are a temptation. No one can tell you what to do but you. You know better than anybody else. And then the follow-up. 
if you do this, you will be like God. The man who was once after God's heart has now ascended beyond his God, and he has captured the seed of the Almighty. The divine David is his nickname. The omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent one. He commands He commands armies from afar. He doesn't even have to be there. He's pulled Uriah's wife into the orbit of his will. He has determined the fate of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. He even has the power to forgive sins. When the report came that Uriah was dead, he pardoned his general Joab, his chief commander. And this text says that upon hearing the report of Uriah's death, he said, Oh, I see. That's too bad. I want you to go back and I want you to tell Joab, don't trouble yourself over this. War kills. Sometimes one, sometimes another. You just never know who's next. Pharaoh, Ramses II, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Cyrus the Persian, Alexander the Great, the Lord, God, Caesar, Augustus, Herod the Great, Emperor Nero, Hitler the Chancellor. Divine David is in a unique and exclusive fraternity. And we can all see with with Divine David at the controls, all, all hell is breaking loose. When Uriah's wife hears about her husband's murder, the grief of this woman's disgrace is the culmination of all of Israel's grief, and to be honest, it's, it's the culmination of our grief as well. It is unbearable. Divine David mocks the law of the God that he once worshipped. It's a sham to all because it says that he waits for her period of mourning to be over, and then he he claims her again. Like the sheriff of Nottingham with Marion of Loxley, he forces the woman that he had had sex with and he put away. Now he forces her to marry him. His ultimate authority in this display is, is final and it is forever here with this, with this disgusting demand. It's like a bad movie that gives you chills. We suffer with the characters because as Pastor Hope says, we can see our own lives in David's story. And you know what David has done here? He has completely silenced God. David has forgotten that this, this God, this, he has tried to silence this God, but he has forgotten that this God is silent only when this God chooses to be silent. And when God is silent... That does not mean that God is not present. Because what breaks the silence is a word. And a word from God will get you. Buchner says this, that the gospel is bad news before it is good news. And David's pastor, Pastor Nathan, is sent to deliver a word. He says, one time, uh, once upon a time, there were these two men who were living in the same town. One was a rich man and one was a poor farmer. Now, not much description is given about the rich man except to say that he had everything he ever needed or anything, and everything he ever wanted. It doesn't take much for us, the readers, to imagine, uh, to, to imagine what this rich man is like and to think of immediately somebody that we know or we've heard of that fits into this category. 
but the, but the description of the young farmer is deep, and it's multi-layered, and it's textured so that it evokes compassion from us. Pastor Nathan says he has one little lamb that he's raised like a daughter. He's loved her, and she's loved him. And he continues, one day a traveler comes to town, and immediately the rich man wanted to impress him because he was stingy. He jerks the crying lamb from the arms of the farmer and led her to the slaughter, and he did it simply because he could. And when David heard this story, he was incensed. His anger could not be contained. Words in the form of stories like this move people. It moves them in their emotions. It moves them in their guts. We call this, this form of storytelling, telling a parable. So let me tell you a parable, okay? When Holly and I moved to Oklahoma City, we found this house and it had a swimming pool. And we bought the house because we thought it would be great to have some of our students from our youth ministry over from time to time. So early in the summer of our first year, our family went out of town for a few days And when we got back, I noticed that some things in the backyard just didn't feel right. That afternoon, I saw the neighbor, and he said with a bit of annoyance, and honestly, a lot of condemnation, looked like the kids in your youth group were having a good time last night. Apparently, when we were gone, they decided to jump the fence and swim. And apparently, they were loud into the night, and apparently, they woke him up, and apparently... He determined that I was the worst youth pastor in the world because when he looked over the fence, he saw that several of them had shimmied up the side of my house and were jumping off of the roof into my swimming pool. Oh, I just, I'm mad even thinking about it right now. (laughs) So the next morning, I had to go to church and I needed to teach Sunday school. Oh, and, and the whole group was there. They were sleepy from a long weekend and apparently a lot of fun. So I read a proverb about the importance of seeking wisdom, and then I told them the parable. And I started it this way. We've all done foolish things. Boy, I've done some really dumb things in my life. When I was in college, so many of you could, could tell that story. I, re- I realized there are a lot of stories that start that way. When I did some dumb things in college. When I was in college, my buddies and I would play this game at night called Fireball. Now, warning number one, do not, do not try this game at home. I'm telling you, as I told them, do not play this game at home or at work or at school or anywhere. Do not play with matches of any sort. And while we're at it, do not run with scissors Do not cross the street without looking both ways. Do not lick an icy flagpole. And do not throw paper airplanes because you'll put an eye out. Do not. Do not, do not, do not do stupid things. And when I think back on that, that was so stupid playing that game. The summer after my freshman year, a couple of my buddies came to my house. I was at home living with my parents one summer. And late one night, guess what we did? Oh, some of you are thinking we played fireball, which we did, but I'm even stupider than you think. My brother, Matt, is eight years younger than I am, and when I left for school, when I left for college, he was only about 10 years old. So that night, me and my college buddies woke him up, 
to teach him how to play this game. There we were in the middle of the night playing this game in the front yard with my 10-year-old brother when Mark Pollock bursts out the front door wearing nothing but a bathrobe. (laughs) Now, warning number two. If you didn't know it, it's not a good idea to wake up Pops for any reason. He had a regular 4.23 a.m. wake-up call, and he had to get to the pool to swim a couple of miles before work. He's not exactly Mr. Happy when he gets woken up at 1.45, but when he wakes up because he thinks the street is on fire, but he, he realizes that you've taught your elementary-age brother how to play with matches, he's even less happy. I don't know if I've ever seen him that mad before. He could not speak. (laughs) He was silent. (laughs) Just just even though he's silent does not mean he's not present. (laughs) And if I didn't know how real the situation actually was, all I had to do was look at my mom because she was crying. And I remember in that moment what I had done. I I, I realized then what I had done. That it was beyond stupid. I was a model to my brother. He looked up to me. I put my stamp of approval on this kind of behavior. I put his life in grave danger. I taught him that it was okay to do this dangerous and reckless thing. And I was going to go back to school, and he might play this game when I wasn't there. He could hurt himself, or he could kill himself, or he might teach it to his friends, and he might hurt them, or he might kill them. And I looked at my youth group after telling this story, and with all the sincerity and grace I could muster up, I said... Doing that was so stupid. It may have been the most stupid thing I've ever done. Everyone does stupid things. And going over to my house (laughs) in the middle of the night when I am not home and jumping off my roof into my pool is one of the stupidest things that some of you have ever done. There was this collective gasp in the room, and I heard one student in the back say, he knows. (laughs) So just to dig it in a little bit more, I said, you know what? And this this is the truth, but I said, you know what? You have broken my heart. I love you. I love being your youth pastor. I've offered my life to you. I have given my best to you. One false move. One slip-up, one accident, and our ministry is over. Everything that Holly and I have ever worked for, even our lives, would be over. You have taken advantage of my best by giving me your worst. I'm sure this is how my parents felt that night I was so stupid. I'm sure this is how silent God felt watching these events unfold in David's story parable. Within a word, these stu- they were, the students were tricked. They thought the lesson was going to be, don't do stupid things, when in fact the lesson was, the crime has already been committed. You're already stupid. <laughs> they just didn't realize it until they heard the parable. 
And, and like my students, first, David doesn't get the lesson. He's infuriated with Nathan's story. His imagination is so captured that he wants immediate justice, and he is just the man, divine David. He is the one who is going to carry out the sentence. He asks the question, who did this? By God, get him here. He deserves to die. And the power of a parable, it's like a vortex of words that suck us in. I think this is why Jesus used them so often. He knew the parable was like a a ninja sneaking up on us. It's like a leopard stalking without knowing. It's the python that's got us hypnotized right before our life is squeezed from us. And Nathan, Pastor Nathan, just squeezes the life out of David with one sentence. My friend, you are that man. You know what we do? We speak of the gospel with such general futuristic terms, and we always categorize it like it's for somebody else. But the gospel is never for somebody else. You are that man. You are that woman. You are that boy. You are that girl. The gospel is specific to you. I am that man. It is specific to me. The gospel is never a generalized truth. It's a truth that is specific, and it demands a first-person's response, a first-person response. Every single one of our lives is tragic. We are all stupid. Every one of us has, at one time or another, pushed God from the center and tried to claim the title divine. Buchner says this, when the word comes after silence, you know what happens? We look, we, we, we look into the mirror and we see the phony or the chicken or the slob peering back at us. Our lives are tragic. But the gospel is bad news before it is good news. And that is good news. They say that David was the man after God's own heart, but, but the truth really was is God was after David's heart. And while our lives are tragic, the comedy is grace. He and we is and are loved, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. Before condemnation gives way, because we are so stupid, we are then swept up into the restoring, forgiving, saving activity of God. Maybe this is what Maybe this is what St. Augustine meant when he used the phrase, Felix culpa, oh, happy sin. He was not putting his stamp of approval on sin. He was simply saying that, that I, only when I'm able to, to recognize and confess my sin am I, am I in a position to recognize this God who is able to save me from my sin. If I can't see and acknowledge my own sin, then then I miss a greater, more central purpose, and that is this, that Jesus saves me. There is something ridiculous and hilarious about that. The the, The gospel is bad news before it is good news, but in the end, it is good news. Maybe that is why every single student that was in my that was at my house that night came to me and they confessed. Some came in tears, several with their heads down, 
all were shamed. And you know what? Now we laugh hilariously because it was an opportunity for grace and forgiveness. I have been privileged to marry some of them. I have been privileged to hold their babies, to pray as they worked out their own pastoral vocational call, or a new job that they had, or their college choices, or I got to talk to them about their job opportunities, or their classes in college. I got to sit with several of them through very, very hard days, and with one of them, one who was jumping into the pool that night, I even got to plant a church. He was the one who put us in an amazing financial situation so that we could start out well. The good news is this, that David, maybe for the first time, began to, and maybe for the first time in his whole life, began to realize the scandal that is grace. And you know what he did? He confessed his sins. In fact, he, he, wrote him, he, he wrote his confession down. It shows up in Psalm 51. And his words now become our words. Don't throw me back out with the trash. Or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sails. Commute my death sentence, God, my, my salvation, God. And I'll sing anthems of your life-giving ways. You've heard it said multiple times already this evening. In our church, we've made commitments to tell the truth, as difficult as that might be. And the truth is this, that there is a way towards forgiveness. Our lives are tragic, but then a word breaks in. James, who was the brother of Jesus, said, if we claim that we are free and we are free from sin, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is absolute nonsense. But on the other hand, if we tell the truth and we admit our sins, he won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins, and he'll purge us from all the wrongdoing that we've done. David's sin, enormous as it was, was wildly outdone by God's grace. So I think that this is a way we start to respond. We begin by telling the truth about our tragic lives and the actions that have contributed to this tragedy. We get honest. And then we ask this God who was powerful enough to forgive David who was the worst, who then was restored to the best, to forgive us as well. My friend Scott Phillips wrote a song a few years ago, and uh, one of the things that the church has done is it has regularly prayed prayers of confession. Prayers of confession mean that we just pray prayers of truth-telling. So I thought it would be good if Scott's Scott's song became our prayer uh, as we sit in our seats before we come to this table the table of our Lord. And so I invite you to take a posture of prayer and to listen to Scott's song. So listen to these words from Frederick Buchner. At the last meal Jesus ever ate with his friends, when the goon squad was already laying for him, laying for him in the shadows and all hell was about to break loose, he says to his disciples with great confidence, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We come to this table as a confession that there have been times when we have pushed God out of place and we have placed ourselves in the center, and yet his invitation is still extended to us to become friends and to become family. It is here at this table where we find forgiveness. So at dinner on the night 
before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is broken for you and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood and whenever you drink this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Any person who is willing to face the truth of who they are and is seeking forgiveness is welcome to this table. John Wesley said that communion is salvific, which means that it is the place where we get saved. We get saved from our ways, our selfishness, our past. We get saved for a new future. And if that is you, you are welcome to this table. We want no barriers, so I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, but when you come, move out the left side of your row and come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that, comes, that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, eat it, and then be thankful, for you are forgiven. If for any reason you cannot make it down our aisle, just wave at Paul. He will come and be glad to serve you. But when you are ready, my friends, I invite you to come.